We're in Ezekiel tonight, Ezekiel number four, Pastor uh, chapter 14. So this will be one that we, our method has been to take a chapter a week, just not to get too bogged down. It's a prophetic book, but lots of historical narrative, and usually they go faster than, say, a doctrinal pastoral epistle, but, um, and it has been going faster, but I think what we'll do is we'll take verses 1 through 11, that's one portion, and then 12 through 23 is another separate portion, but I'll begin to read at verse 1. Hear God's holy word. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. They've put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his hearts puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him the answer in the matter of the view of the multitude of his idols. In order to lay hold of the idols of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, turn your faces away from your abominations. For anyone in the house of Israel or in the, among the immigrants who stays in Israel who separates himself from me, sets up idols in his hearts, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man, make him a sign and a proverb. I'll cut him off from among my people, so you will know that I am the Lord. But if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon the prophet. I will stretch out my hand against him, destroy him from among my people Israel. Thus they will bear the punishment of their iniquity. As the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be. In order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions, they will be my people, I will be their God, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are a three times holy God. I pray, Lord, increasingly we would think that, we would feel it, it would change our, our words, our actions, everything about us that we would sanctify you as we desire to draw near to you. You are a holy God. Help us, gracious God, um, embrace the truth of this passage that you are calling sinners, even sinners among your people who have been estranged from you because of their idols, that um, we should repent. Grant me the ability to preach such, such a message that would bring you glory and honor, and grant us all, Lord God, ears to hear and um, a heart to receive it, that we would um, receive both the, um, the pleasing things in your word and sometimes the difficult things, that we would receive them all as your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My intention, if you look at the section that we just read, 1 through 11, is really kind of to unpack the theme that we find in verse 6. Um, hence my title. What's the title? God calls sinners to repentance. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols. Turn your faces from all your abominations. So we're really going to look at the subject of repentance. And 
I would say perhaps most of the time when we think of repentance, we think of the initial repentance that we do from our sins. We turning from our sins and we turn to God in Christ for the first time. But it's not just the first time that we repent of our sins. I think Martin Luther had said something, and I'll paraphrase it, that the Christian life is one long string of repenting. So we repent the moment we say, Thou, Son of David, have mercy upon me. We turn from our sins and turn to him in justifying faith, which repents. We apprehend the mercy of God in Christ, turn from sin, turn to him. But we, we do that um, every single day that we sin against God. And I would say that even as true believers, we sin against God in thought, word, and deed every day as believers. So yes, there is this initial repentance where we turn to God in Christ, where we turn from sin to Christ, which I, I think to a large degree perhaps this is here. But, um, but it's not the end. Uh, repenting is something that we will be doing, just like belief. Uh, we believe initially, thou son of David, have mercy. That's the initial act of faith. Uh, but then we, we live by faith. So if you're thinking, so okay, I've repented, check uh, onto the higher level classes in Christianity. No, we're going to stay. Um, uh, repenting is something that will be commonplace in our lives as believers. So we're going to look at this. Now, thematically, we've said this m- many times regarding the book of Ezekiel, which is true. A significant portion of the book of Ezekiel is God's promise to send judgment on persistent sinners. The first, maybe one, chapter 1 through 23, we have God's promise on persistent Israelitish sinners. He, he writes to the Old Testament church, as it were. He says, if you persist in your sin, I'm going to judge you. And then I want to say from chapter 23, 24, 25, something like that, uh, to the end, he speaks to the nations, to the Gentiles. In the land of my youth, they would refer to... Um, to the Gentiles as the Goy, which is singular, or Goyim, which is plural. It just means nations, so it's Gentiles. So the first section, God says to the Jew, if you persist in your sin, I'm going to judge you. And then he says to the Gentile, if you persist in your sin, I promise I will um, judge you. And when I say judge, um, God promises to judge sinners. And we've mentioned before God's promise to judge sinners is not just in the abstract. We've said many, many times, it's not sin separated from the moral agent that's doing the sin that God will judge. It's the actual moral agent. And so think of it like this. God hates sin, and God will punish sin, but God will not punish, say, the murder. God will punish the murderer. I know it seems almost self-evident, but sometimes we're very, very good at excusing ourselves. We'll say, well, God hates the sin, but he sure loves me, and that may be true if we're in Christ. But he does mean, for those people that are unconverted, he will actually punish the moral agent. And then when, for the believer, we don't receive punishment, which is punitive, uh, we receive discipline, but he's not disciplining um, our sin in the abstract, he's disciplining us as the moral agent. So when we look at the judgment of God, God is promising to, to judge uh, those people who break his uh, moral law. We looked at this, I think, in Sunday school. We looked at it in the morning sermon. And again, I really didn't plan it this way. It looks like God the Holy Spirit planned it this way. But we're again, because we're looking at the, the call to, to repent, it's repent of your sins. And in, in our text, we'll even 
talk about what God is getting at with the repentance is turn away from your paramour, your idol, and turn back to your husband, the Lord. That's the call. So turn from, turn to. That's the idea of repentance. And it's repenting of sin. And I, I mentioned this at perhaps in my Sunday school. I'll just give a, an advertisement again. Um, J.C. Ryle, on his book on, on holiness, sanctification, he begins that book with a whole chapter on sin. I recommend, I recommend that book to you. Our, our church, the, the church, the modern church needs, needs J.C. Ryle. And it needs that particular book. And his, his idea is the higher view of sin that we have, the better and the higher view of Christ that we have. And um, when we're looking at the business of repentance, ordinarily, um, we don't tend to think that that's something very gracious or something very welcome. But I would argue that, um, that the business of calling people away from law-breaking is a very, very, very gracious thing. I'm going to quote from our secondary standard, the larger catechism, on the benefit, one of the benefits or some of the uses of the moral law uh, for the regenerate, for the born again. So what use, sometimes people think, well, I'm a believer. What, what, what benefit would the moral law have to me? Lots of benefit. Not as a covenant of works to merit our salvation, of course, but question and answer 97 from our larger. Again, the notion of repent of your sin brings in the concept of the law because sin is lawlessness. And so God is speaking to his church, preaching the law. Here's question and answer 97. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate, to born-again people? And here's the answer. Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ are delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so they thereby are neither justified nor condemned by the moral law, yet besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use, the moral law, to show us believers how much we are bound to Christ for his fulfilling of it and enduring the cross thereof in, in our place and for our good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as a rule of obedience. This is the benefit of the preacher preaching the gospel and then preaching the law into believers, calling us to repent of our sins and testifying to us that God has paid so much for them and how much we're obligated to him. Now, behind all of this business, when God is expressing his displeasure with the idols of his people, behind this idea of his uh, being offended is, um, I would say, the holiness of God. And sometimes the Bible will say, and there was no fear of God before their eyes. And I... I if I were to argue, I would say there's no fear of God behind the bulk of Americans' eyes. They're not afraid of God. And they're not afraid of God is because they make God small and man big. And one of the things that they diminish regarding the characteristics or the attributes of God is the holiness of God. This chapter on God's call to repent is essentially because God is holy. Sometimes you, you, you hear things like, well, do you think I'm you know, uh, more merciful than Jesus would, or more, more merciful than God? Surely God would extend mercy here and God would not be so mean or persnickety to judge such and so, such and so, because I wouldn't. 
And the question isn't that a human being is more merciful uh, than God, it's they're less uh, holy than God. And that's the problem. So when men say, well, I would forgive Bob or Sally such and so, or I would not condemn them for their sin, and I'm being merciful. No, you're being unholy. And when we look at God's condemnation of sin and his call to repentance, it flows out of the holiness of God. And the holiness of God, we mentioned this before, has two ideas to it. The transcendence of God, that he is, he's other. He, he is not his creature. He creates, but he's, he's, he's high and above the creature, high above the creation. And that's the transcendence of, of God. And then also you have the, the moral purity. God is all righteousness with no unrighteousness. And that's what really, even holy Isaiah or holy John, the apostle John, even true believers that are forgiven in Jesus Christ, that are loved by God, when they meet this holy God, what is the reflex or the response of even a believer when we come into the presence of a morally spotless God? What's the response? I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then the Holy Spirit has to touch the, the, the tongue of, of Isaiah. I've made you clean. Even the Apostle John falls down as a dead man before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John was also referred to by Jesus as what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. He leaned against the breast of Jesus. He was an intimate of Jesus. But then when he sees the spotless holiness of the risen glorified Christ, he falls down like a dead man. That's this. So when we look at sin, one of the reasons we are not running around intensely saying to people, repent, repent sinner which is what ezekiel is called to do is because we're not as holy as god we're not as offended with sin because we're not as holy as god and that's one of the reasons why sin has such a a temptation to us and it doesn't offend us because we still have so much combustible material so behind this call to god's people to repent of sin is really is really the holiness of God. And I do want us to see that. When God calls people away from their sin to himself in Christ Jesus, it, it, it reflects the holiness of God, but it also teaches us this. The book of Habakkuk, I forget which chapter, chapter one, chapter two, I forget which one. The Bible says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin with approval. There's a place, perhaps in the Proverbs, perhaps Ecclesiastes, where it says people too parties cannot walk together unless they what? Unless they agree. Un, excuse me, holy God and unholy man cannot walk together because they don't agree. Holy God has to be reconciled to unholy man and holy man, unholy man has to be reconciled to holy God. And so when we look at this particular call behind the call to repent is that we might be reconciled to this the holy God. Um, When we talk about the holiness of man, we're bereft of it apart from Jesus. The holiness that we have as believers is um, twofold. We spoke about it this morning, I think. It's the justification, the imputed holiness, the imputed righteousness of Jesus the moment we first believed. And then there's the sanctification, the infused holiness, the infused righteousness, which is a practical 
moment by moment dying to sin in a practical moment by moment growing in actual righteousness which is which is ours gift of god um, based on the grounds of the lord jesus christ true but there's the justification holiness and the sanctification holiness and the bible says without what no one will see the lord holiness and it's the sanctification holiness it's not the dekaisune justification holiness sanctification and people that are justified will be sanctified people that are not being sanctified are not justified they're not true believers so it's a terribly dangerous thing to say i I just am the kind of christian the kind of believer in jesus that doesn't have any practical holiness i don't really have practical sanctification you'll know them by their fruits by the fruits of the holy spirit if there are no fruits of the holy spirit that means you're not joined to the lord jesus christ that means you're an unbeliever and so this is a call by a holy holy god to turn from our sin to find forgiveness and holiness bound up in in Christ. And so when we think of this notion that God won't have fellowship and cannot have fellowship with with um, sinners, sometimes we would be led to ask, well, I still sin, and does God not have fellowship with me? As a believer, do you still sin? There are some churches that teach that true believers on earth can reach a state of um, utter perfection where they never sin. They flow out of the the Methodist church, um, certain branch of it. Um, Nazarenes, I think, teach this. Um, have you reached that point in your life where you never personally sin? <laughs> no. We only reach that point, I disagree with the Nazarenes, when they throw dirt on your face. We do continue to sin, but God does have friendship and fellow fellowship with us and how does that occur because he sees us in christ because he sees us holy in christ both in the justification and the sanctification sins so there is a call to repent to turn from sin given by a holy god Uh, we see that god takes unholy people and makes them holy in christ jesus and that brings us really to this I am arguing that this particular section in chapter 3 really is the, the, the dominant theme. Chapter uh, Verse 6 is the dominant theme. I'm arguing that this, even the promise of judgment for persistent sinners, when I have my grace lenses on and my mercy lenses on, I look at God's promise of saying to persistent sinners, if you persist in your sins, I will judge you I see that even as an expression of God's loving kindness and grace. And why do I say that? Because it's a promise of future, not yet exacted judgment. That means what? There's still time. We haven't been condemned yet. We haven't died and fallen into the hands of a living God yet. That's why the book of Hebrews speaks to unbelievers in the in the household of faith and says, today is the day. If you hear the Holy Spirit convicting you today, repent, believe today. Because we're, we, we have not departed from this world, where when we depart from this world, our eternal estate is fixed. If we die in Christ, it's fixed. We'll be with Christ. If we die apart from Christ, it's fixed. We'll spend eternity apart from the comfortable presence of Christ. So this particular call of... Uh, 
repent, or essentially I will bring judgment, is gracious. This is very gracious. Um, we remember Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. He had a very simple sermon. Do you remember the sermon? He was to march around Nineveh. Nineveh was the Assyrian people. These are not nice folks. They would take you away with a fish hook in your, in your mouth, in your nose, in your ear, and they would lead you away into captivity to be a slave, oftentimes naked. They were a brutal, brutal paganish people. And God sent Jonah to them, and Jonah said, what? I don't want to go to them. And, and why didn't Jonah want to go? He hated them. And he hated them, and he knew what about the Lord. God is so loving. He's, he's probably loving enough to forgive even these pagans that put a fish hook in your nose. And I don't want them to repent. And I don't want them to turn to the Lord and be saved. And so his sermon was to march around the city and say, in 40 days, God will overthrow every sinner in this place and bring condemnation upon your heads. 40 days. And what did that pagan king conclude? And he was right. Well, it's not 40 days. It's a promise of 40 days. And he actually believed it. If we make the 40 days, we're undone. And he reasoned like this. Perhaps if we repent of our sins and we turn to him, he will relent. And was he right? The preaching of repentance, we ordinarily think it's some crazed man with veins popping out of his head, maybe holding up a black Bible on the corner of I don't know where it is down, downtown and yelling at you as you drive by on Saturdays, repent. Um, beloved, I, I don't see Ezekiel doing that. Ezekiel is not looking with glee, repent or you'll be condemned. Ezekiel is one of these people. He loves them. The bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, these are his people. And he's calling them, turn from your sin, find your forgiveness in Christ. I would argue the best kind of preaching of repentance is to include ourselves in this. I am the sinner. I am the man. I need to turn from my sin. I need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever had to call your mother or your father or your son or your daughter um, to turn from sin, please, mom, please repent of your sin and turn to Christ. If you were the son, how would you speak to your mom about repentance? How would you do it? Like this? No. You'd be crying, telling her, Mom, please, this will take you away from God forever and ever and ever. But if you come to him with your sin and, and ask forgiveness, bring him your idols, he'll, he'll forgive you. So when we think of the business of preaching the law, preaching the holiness of God, preaching against sin, which clearly God calls Ezekiel to do. Look at the various classes that he's already been sent to. He's been sent to the prince. Tell the prince he's sinning. Tell the people he's sinning. Tell the priests they're sinning. Tell, what did we look at last week? Tell the prophets they're sinning, sinning. And now he comes to a different class. Tell who? Tell the elders they're sinning. Oh, poor Ezekiel. Poor Ezekiel. Every single class of person he's saying to them, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn back. Repent. Turn back. That his, you want, he's, I, could, I could very well imagine that Ezekiel would say, Do, can I have another theme to preach on? 
And, and the reason he has the common theme is because the, the people are in their sin. Peace, peace will not benefit them. So, but again, it's something gracious. So when we hear a repentance call from God, we shouldn't recoil from it. Our, our, our catechism says it's an evangelical grace. It's a gift of God. It's necessary. The Lord Jesus Christ preaches repentance. Luke chapter 13, 1 through 10, something like that. He says the tower that fell on the people in Siloam or the, the sacrifices that Pilate mixed their blood with. Do you think that you're worse sinners? Unless you repent, you'll perish. But see, there's that time indicator. There's, it's still today. I can repent. I can turn back to the, the Lord God in Christ Jesus. So when, when we look at this, say to the house of Israel, repent and turn away. Beloved, I would pray that we would be increasingly Bible Christians and that we would see this as good news. It is a glorious thing. And notice the contrast between the faithful preacher, Ezekiel, and the faithless preachers that he previously denounced in the previous chapter. They were not preaching repent from sin. What were they saying? Everything is okay. Peace in your sin. Which is not true. Which is not true. God does not have peace with people still in their sin. He, there's an active warfare going on. The only way for the enmity to be taken away is for the sin problem to be dealt with. So though the other preachers were more popular who were not preaching repentance, to hear repent you sinner perhaps chafes us the wrong way. And the other person who says, everything is wonderful, your best life now, we perhaps would like that person more. Whose hand and feet will we kiss in eternity? The, the, the false prophet that told us in our sin, everything is wonderful, don't even worry about it, no need to repent, everything is good, stay in your sin, everything will end well. Or should we kiss the hand and the feet of a mom, a dad, a grandmother, a grandfather, or a preacher that said, you are in your sin. Holy God hates sin, but holy God has made a way. Turn from it and turn to God and Christ in faith and he will forgive you. And then what does he say at the end? And I will be your God and you will be my people. If you've ever had a family member that's a drug addict or a, or a drunk or something like that, I have lots of those people in my family. To go to a person who's bound over to that bad activity and tell them everything's wonderful, have another shot of Jameson's. That's wickedness. But to go to that person with a broken spirit and a contrite heart and say, oh, son, daughter, this thing is wicked and it's killing you. That's loving. That's loving. We would kiss the hands and kiss the feet of the person that's told us, Turn away from the drink. Turn away from the drugs and find your hope in Christ. Did it hurt our feelings initially? Certainly. Did we have to suck our thumb for a while because it convicted us of our sins? Certainly. But when we are freed from our sins and we know that God is our God and we are his children, we rejoice. Does that make sense? So when we look at this business of repentance, it isn't what we ordinarily think of in the church of this man gleefully or glib, glibly abusing people in their sin. No, it's evangelical. 
The Bible talks about two kinds of repentance, which produces two kinds of sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, maybe like nine verses 9 and 10. Worldly sorrow is, I feel bad that I got caught and the handcuffs hurt. It's from below. It doesn't produce heavenly repentance. It just is inward and manward and selfward. But what he's calling these people to do is to produce heavenly sorrow. Oh God, I have broken your law. It's what David does in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. He says, against you only, O God, have I sinned. Did he sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Certainly. Should he have gone and repented to them? He couldn't repent to Uriah until he goes to heaven, but certainly he should have. But when he says, against you alone, O God, have I, have I sinned, it shows us what God is calling the people to do. Turn away from the false gods and true repentance is not towards another human being. Uh, essentially, it's towards God. I broke your law. Forgive me for breaking your law. And that's a radical dis- difference. And you can test yourself. Is my repentance, is my sorrow earthly, worldly, which is not evangelical, which is not repentance unto eternal life? Or is it gracious? Is it a gift of God? Do you cry tears of repentance towards God or towards man or towards self? And then it will indicate whether this is a gracious evangelical gift of God. So this is the good news of repentance. We read from our Shorter Catechism, there is a whole chapter in our Confession, chapter 15, that deals with it. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 1, Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine where is is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. The the um, John the Baptist went out preaching what? Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Mark chapter one. And Jesus went out preaching the gospel. What did he do? He said, "Repent of your sins and believe in me. Turn from sin and turn to Christ, the sin bearer." And so we see we see that a, a seminal or an infant form of that. And he tells the people to repent. This is faithful preaching, as I mentioned. Think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was calling the leaders of the Old Testament church, as it were, you brood of what? Oh, vipers. And then he said to them, repent. And then he said, produce what? Fruits keeping with repentance. It's very easy to say, I hate my sin, I'm turning from my sin, and I'm going to turn to Jesus, my sin bearer. It's very easy to say that. But we prove whether our repentance, hatred of sin, and turning to God in Christ for the remission of that sin is genuine by the fruits it produces. It would be akin to a man saying, yes, I'm repenting of my drunkenness as he's polishing off a fifth of Jameson's Irish whiskey. Would you believe his, his repentance is genuine? No. But when you see the person fighting against that and turning to God to sustain him in that fight, then you know the repentance from sin is um, genuine. And as regards to the false prophets, they weren't preaching a genuine repentance. And the Bible says in chapter 13 that they were whitewashing over the people's sin. Jeremiah says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. It would be like a doctor saying to a person, with uh, cancer, you know what? I think you're okay, but what you need is an Advil and maybe an Advil PM. 
maybe you would get a good night's sleep after that and you would think wow what a really nice doctor has that doctor healed you or whitewashed the problem the problem is still there and so God sends the faithful preacher the faithful prophet to not just heal superficially not just to put a band-aid on something that's going to eventually damn them but to deal with the problem the problem is that you're idolatrous at heart let's deal a little bit with that we've mentioned this before i just did as we walk through the chapters oftentimes god will address another class within the household of faith as we mentioned the prince the people the prophets the priests and now the elders and he says the whole lot of them from the top of the head to the tip of the toes the whole lot of them uh, are apostate. This is a Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. It doesn't look good for the visible household of faith. So now he's sent to these elders. We've seen these fellows before in chapter 8, verse 1. Then some of the elders came to me and sat down before him. Um, Elders are, these men were instituted, was it uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, that said, Moses, you're working yourself to death here's what you should do you should institute the the business of representative rulership guides elders these are early presbyters which is what an elder is a presbyter so presbyter in this case plural presbyteroi and so these are elders oftentimes these men were um, they had chieftains leaders of, of tribes and they would lead and guide the people and I would say civil matters secular but nothing secular in a theocracy everything is religious but in the day-to-day lives if you had a dispute or something like that you would go to the local group of elders and they would help you apply god's word in settling that dispute and so god says uh, to these people uh, tell them that they're committing idolatry in their heart what's interesting is right after god tells ezekiel go to the false prophets and rebuke the false prophets is you know of course he would have been doing it in front of the presence of these guys and then right away the elders who are, are idolatrous they say ezekiel you need to clear your um your 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 schedule book we need an appointment right now we saw you preach and heard you preach that sermon against those wonderful prophets that we hired and we want to talk to you <laughs> uh, george whitfield said it's a pitiful sermon, a pitiful preacher um, that, that he doesn't make either the audience mad with the preacher or the audience mad with themselves for their sin. And right away, we see the faithful preacher indeed has made some people angry with him. He's made both the false prophets, but he's made the false elders mad. And they clearly see, well, if he's denouncing these fellows that we love, That would include us. We need to talk to them. The fear of man, the fear of man is not something uh, to be treated lightly. The book of Proverbs talks about it. Isaiah chapter 8 talks about it. Uh, Before I was a minister, I've said this many times before, it was so true. I would watch the minister skirt around hard things in the passage and I'd be watching him. And oh, he's not saying that because he's afraid of that lady over there. Oh, he's not saying that because he's afraid of that guy over there. He's a man pleaser. He's a man fearer. And if I ever get to be a pastor, I'm just going to say it like it is. And I will never be afraid of anyone. And then when you get up here, you're thinking, oh, boy, oh, no, oh, no. 
When you are confronted by people who say, I'm not very happy with that sermon you preached, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a real live human being. He's not made of kryptonite. And this is a scary business. This is the part of the preacher's job that preachers don't think about before they get into it. It's a scary business. And it hurts their feelings. And a lot of times the ministers end up wanting to do what? Run away. And that's why they call Jeremiah the preaching, the weeping prophet. He's crying all the time. This is part of the burden of the minister to get people angry with him. And it doesn't do anybody any good to say, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. No, they always shoot the messenger because they can't shoot the one who sent the messenger, which is God. And so he clearly has provoked a response from these people. And notice what he does. And this is by God, the Holy Spirit. The fleshly response would be to say something like this. Well, I know I was just talking about the prophets. I didn't mean you guys. You guys are great and we're okay. And okay, don't let it happen again. But what does he say? Oh, oh, by the way, I have a word from God for you guys too. You're idolaters. This is stunning. This is the grace of God, the Holy Spirit in the life of us. I feel so bad for this guy. Everybody is getting it because everybody's sinning. And so he says, and, and by the way, you have idolatry in your hearts. You have turned away from your true husband and head, God, and you have a paramour in your heart. And from which, when he says, you have idolatry in your hearts, it teaches us about the nature of God. God is omniscient. He knows everything. And it also teaches us the seed of true religion. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards this morning. His magnum opus, is that what it's called? Greatest work? Is, the, is uh, religious affections. And Jonathan Edwards argues that the heart is the seat of true religion, essentially affections, love to God and love to people. It's the heart. The heart is who we are. It's not this. This is not who we are. If I were to, God forbid, cut your leg off, my grandfather had his leg cut off with a diabetic sore. He had diabetic sores and they cut his leg off. And when I went to see my grandfather and we were crying and praying and I was talking to him about Jesus, and um, was it my grandfather? Yeah. Was he the same grandfather that I loved and, and knew even when he had two legs? Yes. He's, he could have no legs. He could have no arms. He could have no teeth, no eyes. It's the heart. The heart is who we are before God. I'm not saying this is not part of who we are. We're going to have a new body. So I'm not saying that. But it, what we learn is the heart is the heart of the matter. So it's not the external that counts before God. It's not the, oh, I'm going to do this and the external, because they're still trying to keep up the external. Oh, we're going to go to the prophets and we're going to ask for the prophet to give us a ruling from Jehovah. And oh, yes, we love this. And God says, oh, no, you don't. All of the outward is hypocrisy. It's for show, because I see that your heart is not for me. Your heart is for your false God. You love your false idol. You don't love me. And so when you come to me and say, yes, I would like to know what the Lord says. No, you don't. Outwardly, you say, you, what does the Bible say in the book of Isaiah? They draw near to me with their lips, but their what is far from me? Their heart. This is like the guy cheating on his wife. He's sitting across the dinner table uh, talking to his wife. I love you, babe. I love you, buttercup. Oh, but no, the heart is with the paramour. Far away doesn't love the true wife, loves the false wife. That's this. And God says to them, I know. I know what's in your heart. 
And then he turns to the people. He says, you have idolatrous hearts that you're loving the creature and you're not loving me. And it's an either or proposition. You see that? He says, you have turned yourself away from me. You've estranged yourself to me by these idols. And what are the idols? If you look, God has already denounced the, the, the idolatry was like the major sin of Israel. Idolatry. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, it will talk about immorality, coarse jesting, all sorts of things being symbolical or, or, or figurative idols. Kelvin said the heart of human beings are idol-making factory. What we love most is our God. What we love most is our God. What we love most is either God or an idol. Oh, I love my truck. I love my car. I love my job. I love. We can make an idol of anything. Where your heart is, there your treasure is. That's your God. And God says you actually love stuff and things and people and honors more than you love me. And I'm calling you to repent. And, and this is horribly convicting because it's so easy for us, even as true believers, is it not easy for us to grow cold in our love of Christ and to change that love for God in Christ for an obsessive, idolatrous love of the creature? Isn't it easy to do? And God says, you're estranged from me. And for these people, for the Israelites, you could say, well, why, why was idolatry so enticing to them? And I want you to think of this. Out of all of the peoples of the earth, they alone worship the true God. Out of all the other peoples of the earth are all idolaters. And the Bible says bad company does what? If you are looking around religiously and everyone else is an idolater, everyone else is an idolater, wouldn't it stand to reason that that's a pretty good temptation for you? And here's the reason why it's so enticing to us. It appeals to the flesh. You don't need spirit-wrought faith. You don't need evangelical uh, grace or gracious repentance to, to, to find fleshly religion attractive. You can be fallen. It appeals to that. And so this is one of the reasons why people love idolatrous forms. And I would even say idolatrous forms of quasi so-called Christianity. And we see the from the idolatrous heart. Look at we've mentioned already. Look at verse seven. This is the hypocritical tongue. This is the people who say, I'm worshiping my false God. And then they go to church and they say, preacher, can you pray a prayer for me? Or like, I really want to know God's will on this. And God says, you're actually, you actually don't. And you're just doing it. Why would people be formalists or hypocrites? Why would they do that? Well, you don't want to appear like you're a pagan. And then God says that he is against them. A number of places I'm going to set my face against that kind of person. And the Bible says this in the book of Revelation. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. God says here to his people, even though you're attached to me formally, we talked about this this morning, there is coming a great day 
when God himself will weigh our hearts, are our hearts born again? Are they regenerate? Have we repented of our sins and turned in faith to Jesus Christ? Or have we not? And God will make the great separation. And then he goes on to say, and then you will know that I am your God and you are my children. Beloved, may when we hear this notion of turn from your sin and find mercy to God in Christ, may we not recoil at it. And may we even as instruments of God in, in the spheres in which God has placed us, may we even call people who are caught in their sins to turn from it and find mercy from God in Christ. Uh, may God be pleased with the preaching of his word.